The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, brought to you by Narcanon Suncoast. Hello, everybody. This is Joni Siegel, and this is the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. And today I have with me in the studio, the co-host, Jason Good. Here I am. <laughs> From Narcanon Suncoast. Yes. And we are excited today because we have a great interview coming up. Just waiting for uh, confirmation that our interviewee is ready. So what's new in the world of addiction it, at your end? It's interesting that you asked because before I... Uh... I left to come over here. I always like to kind of look at what's going on online. And it's funny because people all through Facebook and social media will send me these little like shared articles about what's going on. Oh my God, look at this, Jason. What do you think of this? Blah, blah, blah. And it was interesting. There was an article that came out from like major news sources that some study was done that in the United States, a person is more likely to die from an opioid overdose than a car accident. Wow. Which is a pretty insane it's a, it's a pretty insane statistic because we think about how many car wrecks and car accidents happen all over the country all day, every day, that you're more likely to die from an opioid overdose than a car accident is wild to me. Heavy that, duty. That that, that, that that statistic has surpassed, you know, everything else that's been going on out there that could potentially kill you. Wow. Well, yeah. So, I mean, that's a staggering statistic um, as far as how the, the epidemic is changing out there. But the good news is, is that we've gotten people into Narconon this week. A lot of people have gotten into Narconons all over the country. And we're, again, pursuing that um, concept of having a drug-free world. And that's what I'd really like to get to. That's the end goal here is that one day I don't have a job. Exactly. <laughs> so. Well, we have a great interview today. Mm-hmm. So I am super excited because we are interviewing Wesley mostly known as Wes Gear. He's an American guitar player, songwriter, and producer, best known as West Style. He's a founding member of the band Head P.E., formed in 1994 in Huntington Beach, California. Gear was a guitarist, songwriter, and producer in the band until his departure in 2003. Gear was the former touring guitar player of the new metal band Korn. He replaced former Korn touring guitar player Shane Gibson in 2009 and played with the band until 2013. Gear has worked with a number of other artists and groups playing guitar, co-writing, and or producing songs. Groups such as Papa Roach, The Damages, Ben Gross, and Thrill Kill Cult. Gear left Head PE in 2003 for a change in his lifestyle, claiming he would have died if he continued his lifestyle at the time, which included the abuse of drugs and alcohol. Gear made immediate changes to his lifestyle after his departure from Head PE and attended a rehab in 2004. He continues to live a health-oriented and active lifestyle, which includes participation in activities such as yoga, meditation, scuba diving, and running. Gear has had interest in giving back to the community, particularly with the teaching and mentoring of children. He has taught high school classes in guitar playing and music and has interest in mentoring children on proper nutrition and positive social guidance. Gear strived to find a way to bring the healing power of music to those in rehab. Gear himself used music and playing his guitar as a form of positive therapy while himself in rehab. In December 2012, West Gear started Rock 2 Recovery. Rock 2 Recovery is a nonprofit that allows recovering addicts, victim, victims of abuse, and troubled teens the opportunity to express themselves through songs that are written by the participants in each session. The organization is dedicated to helping, quote, soothe the restless souls of those in recovery, end quote. 
In 2016, the Department of Defense granted Rock to Recovery an official contract for their years of impactful work with the Air Force and Army Wounded Warriors, which I just love. And that part of the group sees the charity travel nationally to various bases to work with these injured veterans. I can't wait to hear about that. Rock to Recovery Award Show was created in 2016, and the sober events help raise funds for the organization as well as help destigmatize the disease of addiction by showing those in recovery that recovery can be cool and they will be supported by a growing community of sober rock star and other artists. In December 2017, Rock to Recovery celebrated its fifth year anniversary while Wes celebrated his 10 years being sober. Wow. So let's talk to Wes. Yeah. So, Wes Gear, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. You know, one of the things I like to start out with is for you to tell us, how did you get started in drugs? How did you start down that path? Well, I was in a dark alley and a bunch of people cornered me and they said, you are going to smoke this pot and snort this cocaine and drink this whiskey right now, or we're going to beat you up. And that's how it's all their fault. Um, no, I'm totally kidding. That's a good uh, story. I like that. Okay. Yeah, I told it's, the same story we've, one time. We've never heard <laughs> that before. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, how did I start? Well, gosh, you know, it's funny. I, I did a timeline when I was in rehab. <clears throat> one, uh, my counselor had me do it. And it showed that whenever I went through, and, and I'm not blaming my life on this because uh, I'm, you know, I'm an alcoholic. I'm different than the average guy in that, in the average person in that way. But, um, you know, when stuff that happened would happen in my life is kind of traumatic or a bum out or whatever you want to call it, I tended to reach out for mind altering substances. And uh, um, when I moved, well, I started I started smoking weed in high school when I was young, you know, and uh, but the first time I smoked weed was when I was going to move from I moved a lot as a kid. So then fi- finally I had a place in Garden Grove where we had lived a few years. I had some best friends and I felt pretty comfortable. My parents decided they were going to leave. And then right after that, I, I experimented with weed the first couple of times and it became my best friend. And then so when I went to the new school it was like I just found the stoners and, and I was, I, I was, uh, I like to say I was smoking weed alcoholically out of the gate. Cause, uh, you know, when you go to get sober or change your life, a lot of times you ask yourself, when did I cross that line? And I, I've had different answers through the years, but when I really look back, as soon as I discovered weed, I was just, I was seeking it all the time, smoking in between classes, ditching school to smoke weed. And, and I was really seeking out, to get loaded. It wasn't like a casual late, Hey, let's smoke a joint and go to the drive in once in a while or something. Um, so it was in high school. And then, um, so the weed was the constant thing. It just felt normal to be stoned. Um, which is a sad statement. If you think about a 15 year old, just being stoned constantly. And, uh, I got into drinking, which was great. Cause I was kind of like a late bloomer and shy. So the booze was a great equalizer and uh, I loved having that liquid courage, you know. Yeah. So it was it was in my in my early teens, which I think is pretty normal for people. I'm not saying it's normal, but it's, it's very typical. I think it is typical. We've talked to a lot of people that got started in their teens, and then we've started. We've talked to those who don't get started until they're fully grown. I was the late bloomer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There there are those cases too, for sure. 
Now, did you um, did you then escalate to hardcore drugs? Well, so my stepbrother, okay, my mom had remarried years before that, and and my stepdad, great guy, he worked at Sound Valley Police Department, which is just kind of almost comical because my stepbrother was selling drugs. Um, he wasn't your typical dealer. He would just get, you know, it was, he would just get batches of this or that and sell it to his friends. Uh, but, uh, he wasn't your like quintessential dealer, but so I would come home and smoke weed at lunch and then he'd like throw some cocaine on there. And so that kind of, or he'd give me some mushrooms. And again, I'm not blaming it on him, but, um, that's how I remember accessing some of that other stuff. I remember taking mushrooms and going to school and stuff like that, which, you know, when you're somebody who does drugs, you're like, yeah, what's a big deal with mushrooms? But when you think back with a sober mind, like, dude, you're going to science class at 15, frying your balls off. That's kind of crazy. I couldn't <laughs> imagine. Pardon my language. I couldn't but, imagine yeah. that. <laughs> Jason's, yeah. a re- Jason's a well, recovered addict as well, just so on, you know. Every time they turned on the... Uh, yeah, I picked up on that. Yeah. Every time they, we were watching all these short films, and every time they would turn on the light, I would bust out in like hysterical laughter. I didn't right. know why, because I was high as a kite. But uh, oh god, I couldn't imagine <laughs> going to school on mushrooms. Oh god, <laughs> it was weird. I would say it, it probably was, was a strange experience. Yeah, well, you know, and then now what happens is we talk about this stuff, and we we talk about it maybe years down the road and, and you see it with a new light, a new perspective. It just shows that I had that symptom of like, uh, of like, I take it and worry about the results later. Like I, I could have gotten the mushrooms and said, well, how about I'll save these till Saturday, but I ate them at eight in the morning. I mean, that just, that just shows kind of like a powerlessness, a lack of resolve, you know, when it comes to getting loaded, that's what I had, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> So after after mushrooms, where did it go from there? Well, so you know, I was I was like what I felt was pretty normal. It was that that stuff was just you know sprinkled in here and there, but uh, I was it was basically basically weed and a lot of drinking. But right out of the gate, I was always stoned and always drinking a ton. So um, that was that was kind of like my. Uh, that was what was in my happy meal for a number of years until I probably got to be about 18 and I um, met up with this guy. He had a cocaine problem and I really wasn't a fan of cocaine, but boy, I sure did snort a lot of his cocaine. And uh, so, but it wasn't my drug of choice. I wasn't seeking it too much, but I did a ton of it, but that shows like the progression of, of the disease. Um, and so it was a lot of heavy drinking for a lot of years. And, but it wasn't until when I really hit the next year, it wasn't until like my mid twenties when I discovered ec- what was then called ecstasy. And of course, by then I'm, you know, doing whatever, you know, acid and you name it, big partier. Um, but then I started my band head PE and was really just drinking and doing ecstasy once in a while but I came home really drunk from a rehearsal, uh, really drunk from a Sunday day drinking venture. And I had to go to rehearsal and I knew I was in trouble because I way overshot the mark. And I stumbled into my roommates at the time and they were snorting something and I was hammered. I didn't know what it was. And they said, ah, oh, it's heroin. I was like, okay, I'll try that. And this heroin they gave me, quote unquote, made 
me instantly wide awake. And I wrote two songs on the way to rehearsal. And I was like, well, I thought heroin was like a downer. And he's like, you idiot, that was meth. And I fell in love. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> it was, I mean, meth has such a horrible connotation. It just seems like such a dirty drug, of course. But uh, but it helped me drink more. But more importantly, it was my muse. I would stay up all night working in drum machines. And technology and music was really um, growing at that point. Like, you know, Pro Tools was developing a lot of drum machines and digital music was really exploding and uh, digital, you know, video and stuff like that. So, you know, I'm doing massive amounts of meth and um, never sleeping, of course. But also I started writing these songs that in my new band that were getting the best success that I had ever had, you know, wow. um, we were selling out clubs and all this. So it's like, you couldn't tell me I had a problem cause I was finally achieving my dreams. And I think it's important. We talk about that because a lot of people, there's a lot of people out there who might walk into a meeting or something and hear somebody talk about losing their house or their car, or maybe there's somebody who's been homeless for years and say, well, that's not me. And they might be like the Wall Street type or something. And it's like, well, right, but you're doing cocaine and whiskey, killing yourself. Who cares if you have, you know, a million dollars in the bank? It doesn't mean that you're um, any on any less deadly of a path. Right. When, and that was my situation. My manager looked at me and I remember him like, like, what's wrong with you? You're 123 pounds. Actually, he was a, he was a guy from Philly. He's he pretty obnoxious, but super rad. But, you know old school school humor and he said jesus christ west next stop auschwitz or what he was saying like you look like you're i mean that's what he said and uh meaning that's how sucked up i was you know um and he uh so yeah but i was torn i I remember the day he said that we were opening up for incubus up in big bear at some mountain festival and and i'm like whatever dude (laughs) yeah (laughs) Well, wow. yeah, you get to the point where you feel like you survive better while you're high. Like it's enhancing your life to some degree. Totally. Oh, yeah. Well, I like in some of the literature I read, it says that our alcoholic life uh, seemed the only normal one or uh, something to that effect. And Meaning like if you go back in one time and you asked your old you, would you ever do meth or cocaine? You'd say, heck no. Then you fast forward to whatever this thing you're doing, maybe it's whiskey or you're a wino or whatever, and now you feel like this is normal life. And not only that, you kind of feel like, well, everybody does. It's not a big deal, you know what I mean? Right. And and yeah, so of course you think you function. This this seems like normal life. Wow. So what 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 was what was the point at which you realized that that might not be a long term solution to anything if i can put it that way well yeah so you know i was getting in a lot of trouble but i think when we compare stories of people who battle alcoholism or addiction or whatever you know other people like i got kicked out of school for smoking weed in high school but some people might go well weed's getting me in trouble let me quit i didn't even think about quitting and i had some duis and didn't think about quitting i had gotten arrested uh and just didn't think about quitting, but it was, yeah, it was a couple of years into the meth stuff because I was doing meth every single day and going on tour and stuff that you, that's exactly what it was. I kind of feel figured that this life wasn't sustainable. 
But that's a far cry from wanting to get totally sober. And I think that a lot of people pass through that phase of like, yeah, I'm shooting dope or yeah, I drink a six pack every night. And you realize it's probably not good for you. You probably shouldn't do it. But how do you change? And that, that is the part where people will pursue that concept for a long time. Again, to the literature that I read, it says we pursue it through the gates of insanity or even death, trying to prove that we can drink or use like a normal person, whatever that means. So for me, what that meant is I quit the weed. I'm sorry, I quit the meth and and just tried to drink. And of course, my drinking went up, but I was just drinking on tour. So how could you tell me I had a problem? I didn't wake up and reach for a bottle. I basically drank at night and got, you know, so there's all these reasons I could tell myself, well, I'm not an alcoholic, but meanwhile I was getting singled out. Like I, I talked about this before when we went on tour with Korn um, in the early days of our record deal with head PE. And, and I knew Jonathan Davis, we weren't super buddies or anything, but, but, you know, we played clubs together, et cetera. And he, the first thing he did is he, Wes, I heard about you, man. You got a bad reputation for being a party or not. I just didn't get it. I'm like, everybody's drinking. Why are y'all picking on me? <laughs> That's what it felt like. I really didn't understand, but I just had this other gear because I would just get out more out of control and just, it's just like, like I said, I had this other gear. So he sat there with me trying to figure out, because he had quit drinking at that point, trying to figure out what I could drink that wasn't Jack Daniels so I could drink and keep it in control. Point being, I was trying to control it, but I could never control it. I couldn't control my drinking. I had little, um, what's the word? I don't know, little elements that seemed like I was controlling it in some way. Well, like I don't do meth now and, and I'm not doing, you know, but still I was a mess. And, and even though in some ways it seemed like I was controlling it more by only drinking vodka, uh, I was still progressing through the the stages of addiction, you know? Right. Just a reminder that you are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. If you'd like further information on the podcast, reach out to us on Facebook through our Facebook page, the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. And if you'd like further information on Narcan on Suncoast, call one 339 3324. That's 1-877-339-3324. So how did you get clean? So Head PE, my first band, started having some really bad inner turmoil and I was still trying to keep things, you know, under control and it wasn't going well. But when I quit that band, and mind you, I was off the meth. I, I quit that band. I started working with my brother. Remember I told you about that timeline. So I started working with my brother and I didn't realize how depressed I was because I had left my band and my identity and that was my baby. So now I have an office job and I went back to the meth. And one of my brilliant druggy friends was like, because I used to drink to take the edge off the meth. Right. He was like, well, here's what you got to do. You got to do some heroin with your mess so you're not edgy. And I'm like, this is brilliant. Wow. What was I thinking all my years? So I was started going to an office job doing meth because I couldn't drink and do meth. So I was, doing, I was doing meth and heroin. So that was the progression of the disease. I hit a bad episode. And so my use increased, uh, like that timeline said. And it got bad real fast. 
And I think that's what happens these days. There's so much dr- more drugs and the drugs are stronger than the old days where it's more like alcoholic, where you, you could drink whiskey for years before you finally crash and burn. But when you're doing meth and heroin, it was a bad scene. So finally, uh, I just went into my brother's office after missing work and I, I was putting makeup on my face, trying to hide some chick left makeup in my house. And I woke up and looked in the mirror one morning and <laughs> I looked like death warmed over. Oh, no. So I put some makeup on, but now I probably just look like Dracula. And like, How are you? <laughs> uh, I don't have a drug problem. Like, I'm Why are you makeup? <laughs> Yeah, it's like the situation where they're like, dude, how are you? But I took it as like, hey, how are you? And I'm yeah. like, I'm fine. And then they're, they're like, no, how are you? <laughs> so I broke down to my brother and I told him, but here's the thing. I was like, I quit before. I'll quit this meth and heroin. My brother's a very normal guy. He might take a hit of weed here or there. He might drink one drink. So I tried that. But what happened is even though I would go weeks without using one, I would pick up a drink. I'd be off at the dealer's house again. I didn't understand. So I failed all tests. My brother's like, if you could quit, cool. If not, I'm calling the family and we're going to have to intervene on you, which that's what happened because I couldn't stay stopped. So I ended up in a rehab. They taught me about my addiction, which was I have an allergy. I'm not like normal people. When I drink a beer or take a hit of weed, it produces the phenomenon of craving. Like I want to be more high and more high and more high. Right. Other people might sip some wine and go, well, getting a little tipsy. Let me chill out. I'm like, that's when I hit the gas, you know? Yeah. So it helped explain to me why when I was trying to quit with my brother, I would just go out on a Tuesday and go, well, I'll just have a Corona. What's the big deal? That a Corona for me is a big deal because it's, it starts the rocket engines and more times than not, I, I can't tell you what's going to happen, you know? Right. So that's how I got sober. I went to a rehab and they taught me about my addiction. And so, but it wasn't just enough to learn about it. I had to um, embrace the program of recovery that helped me change internally. Right. As I was taught, I was taught that for me, that the drinking is only a symptom that when I'm not loaded, I'm restless, irritable, and discontent. And that made sense to me. Like, yeah, I don't like, I, it feels weird to be sober. I don't like it. So I had to do a program that made me feel good sober. So I no longer desired to drink or use drugs. And that's exactly what happened to me. And I continue to do a program of recovery today. I work on myself every day. I woke up and prayed and I meditated today and I read some spiritual texts. And, and it's, a, it's a daily reprieve, as they say. Right. Mm-hmm. One day at a time. So how long have you been sober, Wes? 11 years. I Whoa. just took 11 years on 12-10. I got sober 12-10 of 07. Nice. Well, well done you. Yeah, now, thank you. I actually got sober and rehab was, uh, I think my sober date was July 27 of 04, and I had a couple years sober, but I stopped doing my program of recovery, and I felt fine. Like, I'm not going to drink. And people are like, dude, you should go to some meetings. You should do this. I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure. I probably should, but I'm, I'm fine. I don't feel like drinking. Next thing you know, I was drunk thinking that I could drink beer safely again. So uh, it was good for me because I didn't die. I don't recommend it. But I eventually went back to all the drugs I was doing. And I was like, okay, right, okay. So I went back and just decided I'm never going to stop doing this thing that was working for me. That's awesome. Now tell me, yeah. tell me how it is awesome. It is awesome. You're awesome for getting sober. Very well done. Um, <laughs> and, and one of the reasons we do these interviews is to inspire people who listen, either addicts or family and friends, to 
get help, you know, and get their loved ones sober. But but tell me, because I'm super duper excited. I'm a musician. I'm a singer and have sung since I was a little bitty girl. I want to I want to know how you kind of started Rock for Recovery and the whole philosophy behind that. And I want to hear about that. Well, it's Rock to Recovery. Sorry, Rock to Recovery. I, no problem. And I got, you know, I was sober several years the second time. And only because of getting sober, that was how I got the gig with the band Corn. You got to go tour the world totally sober. And then what happened is their guitar player had left. And so he was working it out with the band and coming back. So I was like, I don't know, in my 40s, you know, at this point thinking, dang, I'm about to be an out-of-work musician again. I was just making some good, some some decent money and had a career, prominent and all that. What am I going to do now? And And I went back to like, the stuff I've been taught for my recovery is a design for living. It's not just how you don't drink. It's how you live your life. So I live my life by these philosophies, these spiritual principles, and one of which it says you can pray for yourself if others are to be helped. Meaning don't just pray, hey, God, I need a mansion and a Lambo. No, but if you're going to pray for yourself, it's okay if, you're, if your goal is to help other people. So I said, all right, God. Clearly I'm meant to be sober because I would be dead otherwise, and I certainly feel like I was um, you know, born to be a musician as it was a calling, so how can I be a musician and help other people? And I also was thinking about my legacy, like, okay, I played in corn, cool, there's been plenty of guitar players, can I create something that helps people long after I leave the planet? And that was one of my dreams. So I thought back to my time in rehab, and there wasn't music there. It was a great treatment program called New Found Life in Laguna Beach. I'm sorry, in, in Long Beach. And, uh, you know, we, we drew pictures. We meditated. We did some yoga, but there wasn't music. And I had my guitar there. And when I would play these silly little songs in our breaks between lunch or whatever, between classes we'd have, I would watch how it bring everybody together. It would break down the clicky walls. So I was like, you know what? I got to create a music program that can help people in treatment, that can fill that void that seems to be there. And so I was like, okay, well, I've always been kind of like a leader in my band so as a songwriter and kind of always, I always dreamt of teaching. So I go, I was like, I'm just going to go in and write songs with people in treatment. Um, I actually was praying and meditating on it. Like, God, what do you want me to do now? And this vision, Rock to Recovery, came to me. And it's like, you're going to go in there and you're going to write songs with people. And that's what I did. And I went around pitching it from for months and months and months. And people were like, that's a great idea. Cool. You want to hire me? Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember I have emails. Yeah, I have emails from October of 12, 2012. And then I founded the organization on 12, 12 of 12. My corn gig, you know, was finally done by the end of that year. So beginning of 2013, I didn't get my first higher until may of 2013 so i was pitching it uh for quite a long time and and uh but once i did it it was rough it was rocky but it was it worked right out the gate i saw people literally transform from being dope sick and some of your listeners probably know what that's like others probably don't being dope sick is like the worst flu ever yeah chills aches but you can't sleep you hurt you can't control your bowels 
You might be vomiting. It's just hell. And it goes on and on. I saw a guy come in angry and suicidal ideation and severely dope sick. And I got him to play. We call him Mr. Pink. I got him to play this little pink shaker. He was like the last guy in the group. It was the only instrument I had left. And I, I kind of explained why I was there. Like, hey, I want to bring music into treatment. We Music's pretty rad, right? So um, he tried it. He bought in. He was playing the shaker. Next thing you know, he's like, how long does the course go? You know, how long is that verse? When do I stop? And by the end, he was jumping around happy. And I was, and I was thinking to myself, because I went in there scared. Like, are these people going to go screw you and throw the bongo at me or what? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know. You right, know I was right. very scared. I was, a, I was an alcoholic. You know, and a lot of fear comes with that. And, and I watched this guy transform. I'm like, whoa. So that physically transformed him. He literally said, I don't feel dope sick anymore. This is rad. Are you coming here next week? He was stoked. So I saw the power of music. And of course, since then, I've had a lot of ex more experience with it. We all have. I have a staff of like 15 people now. Uh, we work with over 100 treatment programs. Um, we're launching in Portland. We just launched in Nashville. We go from NorCal down to the Mexican border here in California. And we work nationally with the Wounded Warriors. We have a contract with the Department of Defense. We fly around. Actually, I just got back wow. from Hawaii writing songs with wounded veterans out there. So this thing, we've refined it into an art form, and it really works. And it's, uh, you know, um, I'm sitting on the beach in Hawaii performing a song I wrote with a bunch of wounded veterans watching the sunset over Diamond Head on Waikiki going, wow, this sober life is incredible yeah that's super awesome boy you talk about wounded warriors and you it just takes my heart and just kind of squeezes it my dad was 32 and a half years air force and my mm. brother my brother was 20 years army and i have such a soft spot for the military and what you're doing with veterans that's that is just that's fabulous i mean everything you're doing is fabulous but especially the veterans really really rings with me resonates with me so i agree yeah it's a special uh it's a special class of people to get to help absolutely so what's next what's what's in the in the hopper for 2019 well my life is rock to recovery you know we're we're uh we have a radio show that i do sunday nights on uh kx 93.5 fm here in laguna beach it's also a podcast um, we wanted to document some of the results we got, so we're writing a book right now um, following, I'm not sure how many stories will make it in the book of those that we've, uh, you know, taken, but it will be, uh, you know, I don't know, 20 stories of people who've been through our program, like, you know, and their journey, like maybe from sex trafficking and recovery or being a wounded veteran or being a mental health patient and how their journey through recovery and rock recovery has been so we're doing that book. We do our fundraising concert every year, which the first year we give away the Rock to Recovery Icon Award and the Service Award to sober, rad musicians. We honored Mike Ness. We honored uh, Corey Taylor oh, wow. from Slipknot. Yeah. And yeah, Mike Ness from Social Distortion and um, Wayne Kramer from MC5. Last year we honored Moby and my friend Tommy Vex, who got... He's up for iHeartRadio. Bad Wolves is his band. Uh, 
for top rock song of the year with Bad Wolves. They did the song Zombie remake by Cranberries. Mm-hmm. So we'll do that event this year. Um, we're, what we're trying to do is just continue to help people. We're doing workshop workshops. We're going to do a rock to recovery, like, you know, breath works, deep core energetics, music therapy workshop in Costa Rica and some other places. Um, so there's just all sorts of projects. I'm getting more into public speaking now because I love carrying the message um, of not just recovery, but, you know, um, self-improvement and getting into what I call the vortex of radness. Um, through... <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Thank you. I trademarked that. Subject. The vortex um, of radness. Okay. It's got a good ring to it. Yeah. The vortex of radness. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, we all, whether you're an addict or mental health or a quote normal person, we all battle with similar issues. And when we can learn how to really um, work on our energy, whether it be moving from like fear into love or faith or getting rid of anger and resentment, there's just so many tools and practices we can do that help us become our greatest self. Like oftentimes it's really just our mind and thought processes that are holding us back. And that's what we learn with addiction. You know, for people who are listening to this program, we are so brainwashed because we think they're like we were talking about earlier, that there is no life without weed or heroin or whatever wine. And the reality is for people like me, and there's a lot of people like me, that's the thing that's been holding us back our whole life. We put that down and we get to, we get to, become the us we are always meant to be, the true us, and the highest form of ourselves we've ever meant to, you know, we've ever been. So like we were talking about earlier, how people are um, typically picking up in their teens, right? Yeah. So if somebody's like, I don't know about the sobriety stuff, it's like the world has never, the world had never seen a sober adult Wes who had worked through his problems and tuned his engine, if you will, to the, finest tuning ever so for so many people you know it's like you get the opportunity to become the a version of yourself you've never even seen and therefore life becomes a version of life you've never seen and when we transform internally our lens to the world looks different the whole world starts looking like a different place yep yeah that's uh, that's awesome. I I love what you're doing. I love all of the plans that you have going down the line. So if people wanted to help or wanted to know more about Rock to Recovery, how do they do that? We're super easy to find on the interwebs. Uh, we have, you know, Rock to Recovery, the name on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. We have a website, Rock to Recovery, and it's it's spelled Rock. T-O, it's not the number two, it's T-O, rock, T-O, recovery.com. Um, we have a email link there. You can DM us on Instagram. Uh, we're really easy to find. And we, if you, we have a nonprofit. We donate our services to a lot of state-funded and um, other nonprofit organizations. If people want to donate to our cause, they can also do that uh, via our website, or just reach out and say hi. Or if they're like, hey, this sounds pretty cool. I don't want to give them money. How can I support? You can always post one of our posts. Give us a like on Facebook. Share something we say. 
and just help us get visibility. It's always a simple, easy way for people to support something that they think is of value. Yep. That's awesome. So, so cool. Last words of wisdom for our listeners, Wes. What would you like to tell them? Yeah, I'd like to say that there's no reason somebody can't get sober and change their life. Everybody's worth it. Everybody deserves it. You hear a lot of people thinking, talking about not feeling like they deserve it. And there's always so many people that had it far worse than you that overcome it, uh, overcome addiction or even trauma or mental health issues. And I think that's one of the main things I notice with people is they feel like they're the only one that has gone through what they've gone through. And that's just not the case. We live in a day and age where we've seen it all before. And there's somebody out there that has your exact story, or maybe even worse, who's recovered to have an incredible life. So it's important to stop thinking that we're so unique. You're not in that way. There is hope for everybody, including whoever this is listening to this right now. And the greatest life you've ever experienced is out there waiting for you. That's awesome. That's awesome. And you're a great example of that. Wes, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate you sharing your story and what you're doing now. And I I know I say this several times on our podcast, but I feel like your story is going to resonate with people Mm -hmm. because of who you are. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me on. There was a time in my life that nobody wanted to hear a dang word I had to say. So it's an honor and privilege to get to share. This is a gift that was given to me by many people who taught me the way. And so it's my job and an honor and privilege to share it with others in the hope that they might find some inspiration. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that was, I thought that was a really great interview. Awesome. I mean, um, Wes is obviously a very well-known musician uh, yeah. in the rock world. <laughs> it's kind of wild, actually. You know, and I, I think that to hear his story of, mm. you know, how he became addicted, I thought it was kind of interesting that he kind of, you know, you you think of like sex, drugs, and rock and roll right. always be there. And yet he had a bit of a reputation as kind sure. of the wild child, which uh, which was kind of interesting. Yeah, it's just it's just crazy because, you know, I grew up listening to those bands and so it was kind of interesting to hear like his perspective on it because like you're sitting there listening to music and you don't realize what the band members themselves may be going through and they're just like the rest of us who go through addiction. It doesn't matter who you are. And we've said that before, especially with, you know, the celebrity deaths that have occurred over the years with the, you know, prevalence of fentanyl and everything like that. It's like they're just other people just like us, they just have a little bit more notoriety for what they do for a living. But he just like everyone else had to go through what he went through, had to get sober and come out the other side and then find a purpose again, because his purpose was in music for so long and being in bands and everything like that. It's like he had to kind of align that purpose for a different reason. And that was to help other people get clean as people helped him get clean. I think that's awesome. I think that's phenomenal. And I think it's, um, it's admirable. Yes. So, yeah, it's it's his way of kind of doing what you do, right? You know, exactly. which is sure. which is which is to give back, and a lot right. of the other staff at Narconon. Um, I found it interesting that you know the the meth when he started mm-hmm. doing meth um, seemed to facilitate him writing music until right. he realized it that not that the meth was going to kill him, and right. so that 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 ultimately was not going to be a solution. But I can see. 
you know, he's definitely not the only artist that we know of, even through history, who has used drugs to for inspiration. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the voice I've always heard that Edgar Allan Poe was a, was on drugs, right? You know, to write the stories that he wrote. But you know, his his story is a great example of coming out the other side and going that is not actually the solution and that you know you can you can write the music and you can do all of that without the drugs Mm -hmm. without the alcohol Mm -hmm. so um anyway great story awesome we'll do this again next week you and i we're back and uh we'll talk next week you got it you have been listening to the addiction podcast point of no return for more information call 877-339-3324 or visit www.narcononsuncoast.org narconon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of l ron hubbard 